Welcome to Tech Leaders Hub, where we interview technical managers to ask them about their winning strategies, lessons learned, and actionable advice for other leaders. I'm your host, Jakub Greitzar. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to Tech Leaders Hub FinTech episode number three. My guest today is Hazel Olivier. Hazel, how are you doing today? Very well, Jakub. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and thank you very much for the invite. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, well, everybody, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for today. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about leadership, a lot about management, and you know, talking a lot about your experience, Hazel, as a as a CTO uh, with, with with quite a lot of experience. But before that, I wanted to ask you. Who do you hope will be joining this conversation? Who do you think will benefit the most from what we have to discuss? Um, I think it'll be very good for all tech leaders, really, um, and especially those that are new in the role. So um, I mentor as part of a women in tech group, and a lot of the mentors and mentees that that I get through and that I speak to um, are all interested in the sort of topic that we're talking about. There's a lot of them that have been promoted and not getting the support that they need and being promoted specifically because they were good at their role, which is something that's quite um, close to my heart as well, that we shouldn't really be doing that as tech leaders because it does demotivate people and really stands to break people's career rather than build their careers. Yeah, exactly. That's very interesting. And you're relating this all perfectly to kind of the main topic of the conversation or the title of our conversation, uh, which is don't promote your best coders to managers. We'll talk about what to do instead. And just like usual, this is a bit of a tradition of mine. I, you know, when I watch these sorts of shows, uh, it, sometimes it takes a little bit to get to the point. I like to give some value upfront. So I would like to ask you, you know, since this is Tech Leaders Hub and you have a lot of experience, what would be your number one tip for tech leaders? Let's start with that. So I think my number one tip is um, let's celebrate our successes more, but also learn how to deal with our failures. So mm. throughout, I mean, as tech leaders, you're always getting um, a lot of firefighting, if I can call it that. So you're jumping from mm. one problem to the next problem, developers are facing issues and failures either when they're building or when they're launching. Sometimes your app fails when it's live um, for for things outside of your control. And it's just learning how to manage those failures, keeping cool, keeping calm. One of the first things that I was taught when I first went into, into management, when you have problems, don't address the person, address the issue. Because addressing the person makes it personal and that's not a way to build relationship or trust with your team members. So always look at the issue. Ask your team member who caused the issue why they think it happened. Look at how you can actually build around that and make sure the failure doesn't happen again. What can you put in place? Continually improve to make sure that things don't happen. But above all, stay calm. Make sure that you're staying prepared and be part of the team to fix it as well. Because that also helps you build your team relationships and people will see your, your, you more as a team member rather than as a manager sitting outside. So if you want to really build that rapport with your team members, be, be part of the solution. Join in and help out wherever you can and make sure that you're giving good input and helping them to resolve the issues as well. And on the converse side of that, celebrate your successes. We, we have a tendency not to do that. We're always jumping, as I say, firefighting from one problem to the next problem. We don't take the time out to actually celebrate our successes. Take that step back and say, look at what we've actually achieved. Well done, guys, and pat everybody mm-hmm. on the back. 
Um, I, I generally do that, especially at the end of the year. I keep a tally throughout the year of all the good things that we've achieved as a team throughout the year. And at the end of the year, I say, do you realize what we've achieved this year? And I put it up on the side and I say, look at all of this. And it makes, it just builds up that um, team feeling that it binds the team a lot better and it improves the, the, the morale around the team as well. Perhaps it makes them see why they've been in that role and what they've been doing throughout the year as well. Okay, excellent. Oh, wow, that is an excellent tip. And as always, I find myself, you know, as a team lead myself, uh, just thinking, okay, I, I should definitely take uh, take uh, note of this. It's true, uh, you know, it's like our mind tends to filter out, you know, just focus on the negative information. A lot of the time, we tend to re remember negative experiences much more vividly because it's it's a signal for our mind that this is a dangerous situation that we should avoid in the future. So with positive experiences, remembering them and celebrating them, you have to take make an extra effort here. Uh, so I, I, I agree with your way of thinking completely. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's the number one uh, tip for tech leaders, uh, that what I usually like to do at the beginning. And let's take a step back before we get into the rest of what we have to discuss. Uh, Hazel, I wanted to ask you to tell just a little bit about yourself, what you're currently doing at Nimbla, what Nimbla is doing, what your role is there. If you could just uh, say a little bit about your, your current situation. Sure. So Nimbla is actually an, sort of a niche in the FinTech marketplace, if you can call it that. So mm. we offer single invoice insurance to the SMEs or small to medium-sized enterprises. So basically, in a nutshell, what that means is um, we have an online platform that makes um, protection against your customer defaults a lot easier for the SMEs. So our system, as I say, it's an online platform. It uses um, some sophisticated algorithms to actually assess the risk of default. Um, so it helps SMEs to be able to see when their customers are likely to declare insolvency and protect mm -hmm. themselves against that so that they can make sure that they're insured. Um, we currently partner with um, the likes of um, Barclays Bank and Starling Bank and a couple of large brokers in the UK as well. And we recently launched a EU offering allowing um, people to trade within the EU at the end of last year, just after Brexit. So that was really good. Excellent, um, yeah. Yeah. So my role as the CTO in Nimble is to manage and drive the value of our technology within the organization. So this includes a whole host of stuff. So defining the technology vision and strategy, looking at the architecture and the infrastructure, our security, our development and initiatives on the technology front as well. And if you think about the dizzying speed of um, technology changes within the, the, the industry at the moment, I've obviously got to stay ahead of what's happening and what the disruptors are in the marketplace to help um, Nimbler to remain competitive in our chosen marketplace, basically. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's perfect in terms of, you know, giving a little bit of background. So just so people can visualize this a little bit more, could you maybe mention a, a few things about, like, you know, specifically at Nimbla, uh, if you if you can share any details, what does your day look like? You know, how do you, what kind of meetings are on your calendar? What do you do in between? Just so we can have a little bit more of a picture. So currently, because we are, have been going through lockdown, we are working remotely still. 
Um, okay. And that sort of fills up my diary a lot of the time. So as, as a technology leader and as I say, um, I believe my staff are my biggest assets. So a lot of my time is dedicated to my staff, making sure that we have regular one-to-ones on a weekly basis, making sure mm. that I'm available to them throughout the day for any issues, jumping on calls as and when needed, and also making sure that we have regular team meetings and that we are utilising the technology we have adopted in the company to ensure we keep those communication um, going as smoothly as possible, not just within the technology team, but in the company as a whole as well. So projects, thoughts, any innovation coming up, any discussions that our commercial team has with the customers, all of those are going on on a day-to-day basis. Okay, I see. And just so people can build up a bit more of a picture of Nimbla itself, you mentioned it's invoice insurance. Do you have any typical... Mm, beneficiaries of your services who this usually helps or you know particular groups of people that that this helps is it geared towards i don't know freelancers when somebody's going to pay their invoice or could you shed some light on that no, it's geared more towards smes as i say small small to medium sized enterprises so they can right, go right, in right, yeah. Yeah, they can go into our system and say it's an online platform. They can sync it with their accounting platform as well if they want to and yeah. or just share particular invoices with us and then we'll assess the risk of that invoice, taking into account obviously their customers, co- company, the shareholders, um, anything, information we can gather from various platforms like Company House and that and we assess the risk um, and we look at the history of payments and things like that. So we can assess risk of default, um, risk of insolvency, those sort of things. And we can do it in a lot um, shorter time frame than your traditional insurers. Um, mm. if, if you think about um, traditional insurance, how it generally works with receivables finance is a company will go to a large place like an AIG or something like that with their whole debtors book and say, I need to insure and they have to insure the whole debtors book. We, we allow the smaller companies who can't afford that to be able to assess their individual invoices and say, well, can I insure that one and that one and that one? And then <laughs> Because they feel risky. Yeah. Precisely, because they see them as risk. And then we offer policies across that so that they can insure those once again through risk of insolvency. Okay, yeah, thank you for the additional detail. I suppose one thing that made me think of freelancing is when I'm thinking of invoicing, I didn't have a, a lot of experiences like that, but I used to be a freelance translator once. And I do remember one specific instance where I spent, I think, months chasing you know, one person to just pay an invoice for some translation work. Nothing indicated that it would be a problem until they started ghosting me for months on end. And then I thought, okay, it would, would be nice if that was kind of insured in, in some fashion. The person ended up paying me just out of the blue without even an email, but you know, I, I suppose the, the job got done and paid yeah. for. Well, that's an additional service we do offer our customers as well. If they've insured an invoice for us, we will help them with that collections as well if they're struggling with it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, that's great. That really speaks to the value of what you do. And speaking of value, I suppose a lot of people listening to this are thinking about the main topic of the conversation. Let's get right into that then. I don't like to keep people waiting. Let's get right into what we were discussing, you know, before we even planned this live, when we were having our first conversation, this is the first thing that kind of really uh, captured, caught my attention, is this matter of promotions and who to promote and not to promote. So you mentioned, and I mentioned this also in the uh, text that was promoting this event, that you shouldn't promote your best coders to managers. Why shouldn't tech leaders do that? What should they do instead? 
So if I look at my experience and what I have experienced throughout the, the different roles that I've taken up in companies, as well as, as I mentioned before, I do mentoring um, for women in tech groups as well for, for newly appointed um, people or people who are looking to move on their careers and looking mm. at ways to, 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 to progress. Um, we, we tend to, and I can go back many years and say it used to happen, it's still happening, and we're not learning our lesson from it, is that pe- people will look at somebody who's good in the role, and it might not necessarily be related to technology. I think this can be related to anywhere in the business, really, is people who are very good at their role, who are exceeding and who are really doing well, um, are seen to as the go-to person. So if you need anything, you go to that person. And once you start getting that I can say star above your head. If your higher or leadership level are looking at um, gaps within their structure, they will start looking at those people and trying to promote them. And I think it's called um, promoting somebody to their level of incompetence, basically. <laughs> so it doesn't help to just promote somebody who's very good at coding or is seen as the go-to person because he's very good at what he's doing if you want to promote them at least give them the support they need and as i say, mm. i'm seeing this a lot in the mentoring i'm doing people are being promoted and they're not getting that additional support so it's a very big difference between being a coder and being a team lead or being a team lead and being a department manager there's different right. um, skill sets needed and there's different responsibilities I've had instances before where people have been promoted into like a team lead position or a manager position and after about two months come back to me and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to be a manager. I didn't realize this was what the job is about. I want to go back and be a coder. And a lot of people are prohibited from doing that because they see that as a negative to their career and they they see it as going backwards. But it's not. Um, we, We need to, as leaders, especially in the technology field, let people understand you don't have to move into management to progress your career. Um, there is such a wide variety of roles available within technology. Um, you can become a subject matter expert somewhere and um, not have to promote or be managing people if that's not what you want to do, if that's not what your skill set is. I admit it, not everybody's cut out to be a manager. Um, some people just don't want to do that role and you can't hold that against them. But as I say, there's such a wide variety of roles you can do. So why are we doing that to people? Because it just demotivates them and at the end end of it, you end up um, losing out on their production, their performance goes down and then they leave the company. So you, you've shot yourself in the foot basically um, by promoting yeah. them whereas you thought you were doing a good thing. It's the way that we're going about doing it, I think, that that is the biggest problem. Um, within the industry yeah i see and it's amazing how every time i have a conversation within tech leaders hub i'm already making connections to other conversations we've had uh for those of us who for those of you who might have listened to the first episode of tech leaders hub fintech we actually had a case where Stuart was a cto who transitioned into a staff engineer role because he didn't want to focus so much on the management so much on the high level vision he wanted to focus on coding excellence and supporting developers to produce their best work and to keep standards consistent across the organization uh, worth a listen if you haven't yet and this relates perfectly to what you said that is an excellent argument not to promote your best coders to managers or at least to take more into account than just their coding skill so yes. i would like to drill down a little bit deeper into this if you're not promoting your best coders to managers or if coding skill is not the most important criterion what would you look at when deciding who to promote 
Well, personally, my way of management is um, quite collaborative. So um, I believe that every single staff member needs to have a CPD in place. So um, CPD, Continual Professional Development Plan. So I will sit one-to-ones with my um, staff members and I will say, okay, what is your career path? Where is it that you'd like to go in your career? And once they've given that some thought, and sometimes you've got a mentor through that to help them with that, we look at how do we get you there? So I'm not going going to promise people that if they want to go to become a team leader or a a department manager, I'm not going to say to them at the end of this, you will be a team leader or department manager. Mm -hmm. My stance is to say, well, let's make sure that you've gained the necessary skills so that when that opportunity arises, you can apply for it and know that you be confident that you will be good in that role rather than just applying for it and not knowing whether you've got the correct skills to be able to do it. So I will go through this whole plan with my staff and decide the best way to handle it. Some cases, people might say to me, well, I'd like to be a team leader, but I don't know if I'll enjoy the job. And I'll say to them, well, fine, let's look at a way of doing what I call job shadowing, where we will put you with a team leader for a few days or a week or two weeks, and you can see exactly what they get up to on a day-to-day basis and then make that judgment yourself to see, is that something you'd like to do? Or is that not something you'd like to do? If not, then let's really look at your, your your development plan and where it is that you want to go with your career. And I find that that's a much better way of doing it. It helps people to develop themselves and then it gives them skills as well that are transferable so they can use it within whichever way that they decide to take their career path. Very interesting. I, I have two follow-up questions. One, about sure. job shadowing. I was thinking... Mm-hmm. Is there any particular way that you handle that in a remote context? Because, well, I can attend the same calls as a team lead if I'm looking to become a team lead, but there is also work that happens in between the calls. And how do I shadow that? Is there any particular process that you have for this? Well, it depends on what the role the role is that they're doing. So, for example, if it's a, somebody wants to be a team lead and we're doing it on a remote basis, what I have tended to do is say, fine, um, Within this particular team, there might be two or three people who say need to have objectives set or goals. Um, so you come to me with what you think those people's goals should be and why you mm. think their goals should be that and make sure that their goals follow the, 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 the framework that the company is using. And then that gives them the exercise to go away and think about that and to do that sort of stuff and then come back and then we sit and we discuss it and we say whether it's right or wrong and what the pitfalls were and why they weren't doing it correctly. And it's a way of mentoring them through that to gain those skills, even though it might not be something that we implement, it's giving them that exposure and that experience. Okay, so it's not like a ride-along, but you actually get to try your hand at some of these tasks and see how you do Precisely. And even if we weren't remote, I would encourage the team leader who they're shadowing to to give them certain tasks to do and then assess those tasks when they come back. Because a lot of people learn better rather than just reading a book or following people to actually physically do some stuff. If they physically do it, it's it's in their brain and they learn much quicker that way rather than just watching somebody. It's kind of boring just watching somebody the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, it might be, although I do hope that the people watching us talking will keep watching. Uh, but by the way, meanwhile, I mentioned I had two follow-up questions. The second would be, 
I'm imagining a scenario like this. I have a team, I have a conversation with them, and I create this uh, professional development plan. No, sorry, could you say that acronym again? Was it uh, CP CPD? So it's a continued professional development. And it's something that everybody should have in their careers because it's to help you continue to develop the whole time towards your goals, to, towards your aims. Where is it you're trying to get to? And you could have it on a personal basis or within your company if you wanted to, but it's just a way of setting yourself certain milestones of what it is that you're trying to achieve or accomplish. That is actually fascinating. I, I'm going to drill down into this a little bit, if I may. Um, so what should go into this CPD, this uh, continuous professional development plan? Anything that you want to, really. So um, oh. what, what I would say to, to um, my team members when I'm doing this is think about things that you're interested in, things that you would like to learn about, um, but just keep it in line with helping to improve your role, your skill set, and your career development. Um, obviously, if somebody comes to me and says, in, in the tech team, and says, I want to learn about pigeon husbandry, I'm not going to say yes. No, that's not part of what we're talking about here. But you could put yourself a personal CPD in place and you can work on that in your own um, time. But if it's to do with your job or to improve um, yourself for the um, your role because that's always going to impact on the company and improve the company then yes those are the sort of things that we're interested and it could be anything from reading a book um, having a subscription to something watching webinars what mm. reading white papers and just putting that time aside and deadlines because if you've got that time put aside and you've got a deadline to reach it you're more in inclined to achieve it um and as I said, the deadlines don't need to be cast in stone. They are, what I would say, an aspirational date. Um, okay. So obviously if you can't manage to read a book in two months' time because you just haven't had the time, so okay, let's move it on a bit and see if you can do it in three months' time. It's not like a setting a goal that's cast in stone. It's, it's a development plan for yourself. And the more effort you put into it, the better it's going to be for you. Okay. That is very interesting. Thank you for the additional detail. I, I suppose it is a bit freeform. It is, this is very inspiring. And it's, it's something Thank that uh, not the first time that I'm hosting one of these and I'm thinking maybe that's something to try out uh, in my own processes. Let's say then I'm, I'm imagining a situation like this. I have a team of developers, let's say. I look at their uh, continuous professional development plans and a lot of them want to become leaders. Let's say the majority of them want to become leaders and maybe you don't need so many leaders in your organization. What would then be a selection process to you know, pick out the ones that should be promoted? Well, in this case, over others. I reckon that should be the same selection process as if you were going out to market to interview people. So if you've mm. got six people all with the same skill set and they're all very well, um, you would then get them to submit their CV and put them through a proper interview process just like you would if you were going to market. Because obviously when you go to market, you'll get your six to ten CVs in and only the best candidates will make it through to the end of the, the, the um, to, to, to get that role. Same with the internal True. as well. It should be following the same sort of process to be as fair and as honest as possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you would just schedule an interview with them, have that call with them, have a list of questions, ask them those questions, decide based on the interview. Yep, because somewhere through that process, one person will stand out as the obvious leader and the obvious person who needs to get that role. 
Okay, interesting. Very interesting approach. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of, of doing it like this, but I suppose that creates an equal footing for them, right? It does, yeah. And I think it's quite important, as I said to you in the beginning, to me, yourself are your biggest asset. So you've got to treat them fairly. You've got to build their trust up with them and that you've got to make them understand that they are important, even if they are not getting the roles that they want to, they're still important and how they can help improve the company and um, contribute to the growth of the company. Okay, so you give everybody a fair shot to achieve that position. That that is quite yeah, that is very fair. Uh, uh, that is that makes a lot of sense. All right, in terms of who to promote, who not to promote, that's not the only thing that we discussed when we were preparing for this. And I was kind of getting myself hyped up for this conversation. <laughs> so, one thing that stood out to me is you mentioned that it's very important, and this is something that tech leaders or companies in general are neglecting, strong management. That What we need is strong management, management and specifically a little bit more focus on performance reviews. Could you share why you think so and what should tech leaders do or, or stop doing here? So if I go back to the early days of my career, if I can say that, um, one of the reasons why I finally decided to go into management was because of the lack of strong management in place in, in tech environments. So, and I'm going back many years now, um, tech managers were never seen as being very good managers. Um, they didn't have the management skills. They were more interested in being a techie, um, sitting mm-hmm. there and coding, and they weren't interested in all the other stuff around it. And that's what um, a lot of techies wanted in those days. They didn't want to manage people. Um, they wanted to be left alone to, to see to their code. And um, I can say this because I used to be one of those people as well. And I oh. still have the tendencies when I code to forget the world around me because you get so involved in your code and what you're creating and you get so enthusiastic about it, you forget what's going on around you. So one of the reasons for me, as I say, going into management was to try and develop a decent management um, platform, if I can say that, because I had a lot of times throughout my career come across poor management, if I can say that. And it wasn't really the people's fault that they were poor managers. They just didn't have those skills. And nobody really thought about giving them those skills and making things easier for the rest of the team. Um, Because if you think about yourself, if you're part of a team and you have a manager, when you have problems, when you have obstacles, they're the natural person that you want to go and speak to about and you expect some sort of results from them. Um, If you don't have a strong manager, you're not going to get that and you're going to be feel like your cost that's out to sea, basically, or an island on your own, and you've got to try and resolve your own problems. And that, that's not the best way of doing things. Um, I always say one person on their own can never have the right solution. But if you put a whole lot of heads together, you will come up with the right solution between you. So you need mm-hmm. those extra input from other people as well. Um, one of the things that... Um, I got very involved in throughout my career as I was moving more into management is the soft skill side of it. So let's say making your team feel like they are the assets for the company. They're not just the numbers stuck there in a dark corner and they get everything thrown at them. Um, In my days, there used to be a saying that um, most coders were treated like mushrooms, you know, left in the dark. Yeah, left in the dark and chucked a whole lot of, um, yeah, Manure, okay. <laughs> because that's what we, that's what we felt like in the, in in the bad days. Say, if I could say the good old days, whichever way you want to look at it, because you did feel like an island on your own. Nobody was really interested. Nobody really cared. Nobody helped you with your career growth. You had to try, try and figure it out yourself. And a lot of people made mistakes. 
um, and it was detrimental to their career progression as well. So mm. people need that. They need somebody to guide and help them, to mentor them, to learn from their experience. I mean, if, um, I'm sure there's a lot of um, listeners out there who are parents. It's the same sort of thing. Uh, your children look up to you. They expect you to teach them from your experience so they don't make the same mistakes you made. Um, right. And going through that journey, I picked up a lot of that people were making the same mistakes I made. And when I started mentoring them through it and explaining to them where they were going wrong and why it was a mistake and what what the impact of it was, it was like a light bulb going on. Um, and people who weren't performing started performing amazingly. Um, okay. so, so just from that little bit of input and guidance and help, um, it, it can be a drastic change to your department. And these mistakes, were they related to soft skills or was there anything in particular that you saw, you know, quite frequently? Um, I think most of it is through soft skills. Um, so having having that sort of guidance to know where you're going, what you're doing, that the feedback, regular feedback as well. I think that is very critical for people is to have regular feedback. And if you know for yourself as well, if somebody is regularly feeding back to yourself saying, wow, great job, that's really good. It improves your morale and makes you know that you're doing the right thing. But if you they become there, my favorite person if they say that. <laughs> precisely. If you're sitting there, you never get that feedback. How do you know you're actually doing a good job? How do you know you're not doing something wrong if nobody's actually prepared to tell you? It's something I tell my team regularly as well is if you don't tell me something's wrong, I can't fix it. And true. that's true for everybody. If you don't know something's wrong, you'll carry on making that same mistake with, and you'll be totally ignorant of the fact that it could be causing problems. Okay. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And, you know, it's something that's simple, but not easy. It's definitely in that category, giving that feedback. So your leader can help you solve problems, work with you to solve problems. I'm riffing off of what you said before, the spirit of collaboration, being a team member, not just a team leader that all I think meshes very well together. We have a comment coming in. It's a bit of a doozy. It's quite long. Let me just read it to you in case somebody's listening to a recording or they don't have the video. So be patient as I read it, and then uh, I would love to hear your answer. Marcin is here with a question. Uh, first, a statement, and then a few questions after that. Hazel, you have impressive experience as a leader dealing with people in the IT industry. Do you see a change within those 30 years in the expectations of software developers around the level of autonomy, deciding on frameworks, libraries, tools, branching strategies, etc.? If this is a trend you observe, do you have any thoughts on it? So, yeah, if I, if I, again, go back to the beginning of my um, career 30 years ago, you didn't have that. Um, I think because of the lack of soft skills and management, it was more a micromanagement type thing where you were told what to do and you just did it. And mm. um, if you did, put your head above the parapet, you were shot at. So you tended to keep quiet and not say anything because you didn't want to get shouted at. And, and, and that was the style. I think if I look at the transition in IT over the last 30 years, yes, it's definitely changed. Um, unfortunately, there's still some areas where it is still like that. So I wouldn't say everything's changed. <laughs> there is pockets of change, I can say. And if you look at the um, highly effective teams, um, people that have really high, very good, um, effective technology teams, it's because they are employing these sort of soft skills and that and giving the people time to grow and letting them use their initiative and come up with ideas and thoughts 
um, and, and have input into it because that gives them buy-in into the systems as well. So then they take it on as a personal thing and becomes this my baby. I've got to make sure everything's working nicely in it and then you get the best performance from those people. If you look at the teams that aren't as performant, I would say look at the management and how they are handling those teams because you might find some of the issues are due to the way that it's being managed. Okay, I see. And what I'm curious about is this issue of autonomy. So do you also, how should I phrase the question? Do you also strive to give, you know, progressively more autonomy to your team members? Do you have any rules around it of, you know, when to introduce more autonomy, have them have more decision-making power, or are there some decisions that you really keep, you know, on, on your level and, and the team doesn't get uh, involved in that too much? There's always going to be certain decisions at the high level that the leader has to make um, that the team sure. unfortunately can't contribute towards and have to just live with. Um, and that's more to deal with the fact that your leaders have a higher level helicopter view of the whole picture, whereas you sure. might only have small little portions of that picture. And in those cases, you have to trust your leader. And if you've actually built that sort of a good trust relationship with your team, and remember, trust works both ways, um, they will be tending to, to trust you when you make those sort of decisions. When it comes to autonomy for your staff or your, your team members, that um, giving them more autonomy, again, they need to build their trust up with you as well. So the more you trust them, the more you will give them autonomy. So the more they prove themselves and the more that they do things the correct way and show you that they actually know what they're doing. It's a natural thing. People will give more autonomy yeah. on, on, on that side. Um I think another thing to take into consideration here, if I think about it as well, is that um, we hire people due to their skills. So mm. if we're hiring somebody for particular skills, why aren't we trusting them to do to use those skills? So it also depends on who you've hired and what level of person you've hired. Um, you have to trust people to be able to do what you're hiring them for. Otherwise, why hire them in the first place? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and part of it is also making some decisions that because you, you, you know, as a person, you don't scale, right? So you have to leave some of the decisions to, to your staff. All of that makes perfect sense to me. Machin, thank you so much for the question. That was excellent. Uh, make it shorter next time. Just kidding. Just kidding. That was, that was perfect. <laughs> uh, anyway, from the previous question, I think what we had left over, because we did cover strong management to some extent, but we are still to get, uh, get more into performance reviews. So first of all, why did you single them out when we were talking previously as something that's really, really important? Well, I think if you look at um, goals and what they are, um, they, they are important, and I don't think people sometimes understand the importance of the goals. So if you think about it, goals are there to help you to reach certain milestones in your in your life, like I've said before. Um, if, if you think goal setting, it can help you in every area of your life, basically, whether you're trying to achieve financial freedom or maybe you want to adopt a healthier effort um, diets to, to help with, you, with your um, health or lifestyle or even a promotion if you want, want, want to achieve that promotion. If you're putting goals in place, you're more likely to achieve it than not. True, true. Um, there's a lot of research being done um, around goals and goal setting, and I think two of the top um, ones that I've read about is 
um, there's two doctors called Dr. Latham and Dr. Locke, and they set up this whole goal-setting theory and best ways of doing it and what's involved in things like that and how it helps people. Um, and if you, if, if you look at some of the studies that's been done, I mean, they've done a study at university students who were doing a four-year course, basically, mm. and a lot of them were failing because they didn't have goals that they were trying to achieve. So the university started putting in um, these mentoring classes to help them set goals and all of a sudden their performance just skyrocketed through the roof and they were achieving their university degrees quite simply. Um, so, so these are sort of things that are very important in your day-to-day life and I think a lot of people tend to say, oh, goals, I really don't want it. It's too much hassle. It's, you know, it's, it's something that I'm really not interested in. It's too much brain work, basically, to think them out and how do I know mm. if I'm setting them correctly and things like that. But it is so key to help you to, to actually um, achieve. And as human beings, we like to see progress in our life. We like to see that we're achieving something. It makes us happy. So if, in a nutshell, if you look at it, goal setting shows us progress, makes us happy. Um, if, if you're looking at it that simplistic. So it's very important to set goals for people. Um, it's proven to improve performance of teams as well. So if they know what they need to achieve, um, they know what they're doing in their role. And if they, even better, if you can link that a goal of theirs to what the company is trying to achieve, then they know how they're right. contributing towards the company's goals as well. Um, so, so to me, it's like a circle. You, you set up goals for somebody, you've got to make sure they understand why they're having those goals, what, mm-hmm. it help, what, what it's helping the next level to achieve, what it's helping the next level to achieve and so forth and so forth. If you yourself know the company has a goal of we've got to make so much revenue and you're in tech, how do you know how you're contributing to that? You know, True. So you're giving me a goal of write the system. How's that contributing to the company hitting that? Explain that put it in place so people understand if you do this it will have a knock-on effect to this and therefore the company will be able to bring in the sort of revenue that you're looking for it's very simple right. very straightforward right so if you implement these functionalities this will help the app for example execute faster which will increase user retention more users on the site means more signups means more revenue so that's how we were helping the company grow by improving improving the loading speed of this page for example Yep, that's exactly it. Simple, but it's so powerful. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I wanted to just highlight Machin's answer. Well, he just commented, thank you for the answer. No problem, thank you for the question, Martin. Uh, so I'm still thinking of performance reviews in the sense of, I you, you mentioned a lot about goals and goal setting and how it's important, and I do agree. But then with performance reviews, what is the role of the leader here? How much do you interfere? Well, interfere. How much do you uh, help the um, the team members set the goals for themselves, or do you suggest the goals? In other words, what is the recipe for a good performance review from the perspective of a leader or manager? So, based on my experience and the way I operate, and as I said, I'm quite a collaborative person. When it comes to setting the goals, initially, I will say to to my team member, "Okay, I want you to go away and think about two or three." that you think you should be doing and I'll think about two or three that I think you should be doing and then we get together and we collaborate and we decide out of that pool which ones we're going to put in place for them for that year basically or that quarter or whatever it is that your framework is based around. 
And then we will set up a regular one-to-one, so either weekly or by uh, every fortnight, whatever they're comfortable with, and we will review it every time and just have a quick catch-up and say, okay, are you having any blockers? What are your issues? Has things changed? Do we need to amend your goals? That sort of stuff. And what progress have you made? And why haven't you made progress? What's causing the, the hassles there? Is it time? Is it something else? And then we work on that to make sure that they know what they're doing, as I said earlier, regular feedback. People always need that regular feedback to make sure that they know that they're performing and they're doing the right thing. If you end up with a staff member that's not performing and you don't have these regular reviews, and especially if your company is um, perhaps doing um, increases based on performance reviews, if you're not having these regular reviews, by the time you get to the year, it's a big shock to them because you haven't given them that feedback and told them they're not performing properly and they still think they are, they're expecting an increase and it causes mm-hmm. a whole big uproar and you might lose that staff member. If you're having those regular catch-ups with them the whole time, they know before they get to the end of the year whether they've been performing or they haven't. And if they haven't pulled up their socks when they were supposed to, they know they're not in for an increase. So it's a mm. very easy discussion at the end of it. So it makes your life a lot easier to make sure all of these steps are in place as a manager. Yeah, so, so you think forward to the next salary review, you make goals and then indicate to your team members that if you focus on these goals, if you achieve them, it'll be, let's say, an easier conversation in terms of the next salary review. And then the, it's not it doesn't come as a surprise. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, if you know you've been speaking to somebody for a, whole, for a whole year about their performance and saying, well, you're not hitting your goals. Why aren't you hitting your goals? Try harder. Put this in place. But then, And they're still not hitting their goals. By the end of the year, if you come into the, those sort of things and you need to have those discussions and you don't want to give an increase, you can say to them, sorry, you haven't performed. How can I give you an increase? Yeah. yeah I bet maybe next year, if you really want that increase, you're going to have to put in the effort. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a great tip and a great tactic to uh, to think of it in those terms. I do have a follow up, but before that, and perhaps later on, we'll have to move to another thing uh, that I also want to ask about. But we do have a question coming in. It's another long one. I'm I'm afraid. Uh, Leszek is asking. Let me read it out loud. What do you think about the idea that some developers feel satisfaction of teaching their junior colleagues? They grow together. The success of the person you've been mentoring gives satisfaction comparable to your own promotion. So, Hazel, what do you think about that? I think it's very good. Um, I'm very all for this buddying system or mentoring system and making sure that juniors have somebody who's a go-to person. Um, it helps them grow. It helps the person that they're using as their go-to person to grow as well. Um, 30 years in the industry, I'm still learning on a day-to-day basis. I don't know everything. It's impossible to know everything. So through my mentoring of um, the, the program that I'm busy with, I'm learning a lot as well. And I think it's a win-win situation for both parties. Excellent. I have a question related to that. How would you draw the line between somebody being a mentor to someone and somebody being somebody's manager or leader? Are there any particular responsibilities that one has, the other hasn't, or the other way around? I would say a leader or manager has more responsibilities than a mentor. If you're just a mentor for somebody, what you're doing is you're setting goals with them and you're helping them to achieve those goals and you're helping them to grow those skills and um achieve what it is that they want to and it's very important when you're mentoring somebody to initially set up and say okay what do you want to get out of this mentorship what are your goals and put those in place and then make sure that you're doing it 
as a manager or a leader, it goes a lot further. You are always constantly mentoring. You're constantly leading, but you're also managing performance. You're managing workload. You're managing capacity. You're managing resourcing. There's a whole host of other stuff as a leader or a manager that you have to consider as well, not just mentoring. Yeah, yeah. Excellent answer if I do say so myself that makes perfect sense everything makes perfect sense to me I think I've said that a dozen times already during this conversation thank you it's nice yeah. to know that I have something some wisdom to impart <laughs> you are making so much sense today <laughs> okay Leszek thank you so much for the question too it also made a lot of sense and Gareth is joining us again with this comment totally agree that good management needs to be timely thank you for this comment Gareth and do contribute again if you'd like to. All right, we've got, I mean, the time flies by within these sessions. <laughs> we do have 15 minutes to go. Keep the questions coming if you're curious about anything at all. Myself, this is Tech Leaders Hub FinTech, so I did want to touch upon this subject a little bit as well. There must be FinTech tech leaders out there listening to this conversation, or they might be listening to the recording, and they are looking for some advice that is specific to their situation. So I wanted to ask you, from your perspective, what are the specific challenges of being a FinTech, or maybe in your case, InsureTech CTO? What are these challenges and how have you tackled them? Have you found any methods that work to address these challenges? So from my personal experience, um, being in FinTech, yes, compliance and making sure that you're, you're sticking to that is very key. But one mm. of the key areas for me, and if you look at what's happening in the news constantly, and especially with um, lockdown and everybody working from home, is security. Um, as FinTech, we are storing a lot of sensitive data and that is like um, candy to a hacker. They just want to get at it. So That's if true. your security isn't there you, you, and you're vulnerable, you, you're letting your, your company down basically because as a tech leader, that's what you should, your focus should be. Is my data as secure as possible? So, yes, am I following all the compliance rules? Because I have to, but is my data as secure as possible? And I think as tech leaders, there is sometimes gaps there. Um there is different levels of understanding of security. As I mentioned, with going into lockdown, mm. a lot of people working from home and remotely, um, there is gaps there. And a lot of companies have been hacked even more over, over um, the COVID lockdowns than was before. And before that, it was quite bad already. Um, there's a lot of anomalies that we need to consider and take in, um, under, under advisement as we're busy looking at this. Um, security, although I say as a tech leader, you'll be failing if you, you get hacked. It's not just the technology um, responsibility. Security is a whole company responsibility and True. everybody has to be aware of it. Um, but the tech leader needs to make sure that the things are in place so that people are aware of it and that the correct strategies have been adopted to secure data as much as possible. Um, with, with companies moving more and more into the cloud, it's becoming even more critical, if you can say that. Um, they say that your data is its most vulnerable while it's busy being transferred from system to system. Multi-cloud environments allow that. Cloud environments mm -hmm. themselves where people are coming in, data is getting transferred between those two different platforms, and that's where the hackers try and attack it because it is at its most vulnerable then. Are you putting in the right things to, to, to secure it? Um, I think as well, there's a lot of smaller companies with lack of knowledge within the company because they, they haven't got the um, 
the, the resources um, and the money to go out there and to employ the best people to secure their things. And moving into the cloud, there's a lot of gray area between who's responsible for what when it comes to security. Um, hmm. People have this idea that if it's in the cloud, it's secure. Well, no, it, it, it isn't as simplistic as that. There's certain responsibilities your cloud provider has, there's certain responsibilities you as a company have, and you need to understand what those responsibilities are and make sure that you're securing the elements that you have the responsibility for. Yeah, quite a bit to follow up on here. Just <laughs> latching onto something. No, that's great. That's great. And First of all, not the first time I'm hearing as the host about security here. Actually, our previous session in the fintech vein was just all about fintech cybersecurity with Alex Czarnowski. If Alex watching, uh, hi, <laughs> thanks thanks for joining us. But anyway, a great listen. And it was a very exciting conversation. He's really excited about cybersecurity. Uh, you mentioned that it's in terms of cloud solutions, it's not exactly sure who is responsible for what. So have you seen any specific common mistakes here that you would like to share with your, you know, your uh, fellow tech leaders in the sense of you think Amazon is responsible for X, but actually, actually it's your job. What would that X be? So I think very simplistically, if I can take it that way, when you're dealing with a cloud provider, they are they take responsibility for the infrastructure. So they mm. give you the infrastructure to work on. Anything outside of that, so in other words, your data is your responsibility. Now, in the infrastructure, there's a lot of setup that you can put in place, but you're not forced to do it either. There's certain things that are enforced, but other ones it's up to you to decide, do I set this on or that on or whatever, to, to make sure that your infrastructure is secure as possible. But the data itself is your responsibility. Okay. So firewalls and things like that are easily to be set up in, in, in the um, infrastructure, but who's got access to your data? How is that data moving from platform to platform? And when it's moving, are you encrypting it? Are you making sure it's as secure as possible so that hackers can't access it? And yeah, and that's it. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, it doesn't matter how big or small your company are. I mean, if you look at it, BA is being sued at the moment because they allowed a whole lot, well, 80 million records or something like that, to get hacked at one stage. Um, we've had other massive big companies that have been hacked over the last couple of years and lots of data um, being stolen. So it doesn't matter how big or small you are, if you haven't got those correct processes in place and those correct parameters in place, you're, you're vulnerable and it's simple as and knowing what needs to be in place is the difficult part. Yeah, exactly. And this actually brings to my mind something that also popped in my head before as you were speaking. It's not just about the technology. It's also about the people and how responsible they are with the data. And do you have any you know, tactics that leaders can use here to make people feel more responsible for the data and you know, to secure the data, not just from the technological perspective, but also so that it doesn't leak out through people? I think you've got to make sure you've got the correct procedures in place and people are following them. So you need to have mm -hmm. a proper security policy in place and um, make sure that they understand it because even your emails that you're looking at for work are vulnerable and a lot of people don't understand that. Um, we use a company called Know Before um, to help with our company security. And we what we do is we set up just simple things like phishing campaigns where it starts phishing the staff members um, every couple of weeks or something like I said, phishing emails just to see whether they're going to click on it or whether they're actually going to recognize it as a phishing email um, because that then shows us where the gaps in the knowledge and the training is and then we know what, what to address. 
um, and who to address it with because some people are obviously a little bit more um, afraid with it than others. Um, so, so that's what we use in our company, but there's lots of other things like that out there to help companies to assess the level of security consciousness across the, or their, their whole organization. And so the way this works is, sorry, go on. I was going to say, and it helps them to then plan their training and how to get that knowledge at the right level. Yeah, exactly. So the way this works, I think I've heard of this practice, but just to help people picture it, is these are simulated phishing attacks, right? I, I get a message in my inbox and it's not from anybody I know. It has a suspicious link. And if I click it, nothing exactly happens, but I am in trouble with my security department because this was a test and I failed. Yeah, and it'll actually, well, the software you use just pops it up and says, oh, you failed this. You're just actually a simulated phishing attack. So do you know yourself? Uh, didn't do this right. <laughs> Okay, excellent. Uh, we have a few questions coming in. I'm going to bring one of them up because we still have a few minutes left. And thank you so, so much, everyone, for being uh, active in the comments. The next, we were talking a little bit about regulation, so I'm going to pull this one up. It's from Martin again. Thanks for joining us. And it says, do you view GDPR and Europe-style personal data protection as an inhibitor to technical and business progress? or a chance that can be utilized somehow. You know, as a marketer, I do deal with GDPR quite often. So I'm really curious about your take on this. I think GDPR is good. Um, I don't see it as a prohibitor at all. Um, it offers other opportunities to improve things as well. And I'm always into this continuous improvement cycle. Uh, it's something that I keep banging the drum about. Uh, I can't stand it when somebody says to me, oh, but it's always worked that way because it always works that, that way. doesn't mean it's the best way of working. And I see GDPR and putting that in place as opportunities to improve um, not only our own processes, but also the experience of our customers and make their experiences as, as seamless and as happy for them as possible because at the end of the day, that's what systems are there for, to help the actual users, the end users, and making their life easier, not more complex. True. Yeah, I suppose you could say it that way. The GDPR forces you to think about UX to some extent. It forces you to think about situations like, okay, but what if somebody wants me to delete their data because that's yep. the right to be forgotten? What if somebody wants to just subscribe to, uh, how, how should I put this? Just wants to download an ebook but not subscribe uh, to something else, then how do I split these uh, consents, for example? Uh, because that, that's part of it too. So true, it does, it does force you to think about UX and Martin, there you go. You're, sorry. Sorry, I was going to say that, that there's another area that, that from a tech perspective, and especially if you're in the cloud, um, one thing that people don't really think about very much is the fact that in a cloud environment, the whole idea of the strength of the cloud is that you've got backups in various areas across the world. Um, you can sort of choose which region you want to, your backups to be in. But the strength mm -hmm. of it is so that if your region goes down, it's automatically available and nobody notices. If you're looking at GDPR and you're deleting it off your system, how sure are you that it's getting deleted off all the other regional backups that you've actually put in place? And it's something that a lot of people don't think about. Um, but it is something that you do need to think about because if you're not making sure that it's deleted correctly across all those various backups, you, you're going against the GDPR laws. Yeah. True. Yeah. It sounds like a bit of an engineering challenge to keep track of that, right? <laughs> yep, it is. Uh, and it's something that people need to think about. Okay. Is there any specific way to actually address this? You know, I'm thinking if I'm storing data in the cloud now, I might be in trouble. Is there any way to start fixing this? Well, it all depends on your cloud environment and how you set it up and what sort of regional backups you've got in place. So every single environment will be different 
on how to address it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I said it again, <laughs> but okay. So you have to set it up correctly. Just wanted to drill down just a little bit more into it. Martin, thank you for the question and thank you for stimulating our conversation just a little bit more. We do have one last question. It is a little bit off topic, uh, but I am going to ask it. And then if nothing else pops up, I guess we'll get to final remarks, announcement, announcements from your end, announcements from mine. This is related to Agile, particularly Scrum. Damian is a Scrum master friend of, uh, of ours and asking, it is for sure off topic, kind of is, but let's roll with it anyway. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think about Scrum Masters? I suppose let's finish on that note. Um, I think they've got a definite benefit to, to a team if you're using Scrum. Um, not every company is using Scrum, but I have worked in companies where we have used Scrum um, in our agile techniques, and I found it very, very helpful um, to have a Scrum master making sure that um, they're looking after the Scrum team. I mean, if you look at a true Scrum master and what his role is about is to be there to make sure that everybody's communicating and to remove any blockers, that takes um, the pressure away from the technical tech leader, if I can say that. So mm -hmm. if I have three or four or five scrum teams under me, I'm not going to be sitting there running around trying to find all their blockers and remove them. I have a scrum master that can do that for me and I can just make sure that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing to achieve what they need to be. So there's definite benefits to having a scrum master if you're using scrum within your team. Um lots of people adopt other ways of doing it. Um, if you look at Agile, it's a framework. Um, my stance is that frameworks are there to give you a good end-to-end -end process, but no company ever uses the full framework. In every mm -hmm. single company, it's totally different. You look at the framework and cherry-pick the items of that framework that's going to work for that, that environment. And that's why I say not everybody uses Scrum. Some people use Kanban. Some people use a mixture of Scrum and Kanban. Some people use other techniques within Agile. And there is a lot of them out there. And as I say, every single environment is different. You need to cherry pick what's going to work for your particular environment. In some environments, Scrum Masters wouldn't work. So Yeah, I, I suppose the role fills a need, but you can find other ways to fill that same need. And, you know, we could drill down a little bit more into this, but we are aiming to wrap this up a little bit. Damian, hope that answers the question. Uh, and... One last comment, Martin is saying, agreed, thanks again for the for the answer. Would be remiss not to mention it, but you didn't say that it makes sense, Martin. <laughs> you need to follow the program here. <laughs> anyway, thanks for that. We are just nearing the one hour mark. Wouldn't want to keep you more than, I mean, I, I would want to keep you longer, <laughs> but we do have a bit of an agreement here. So let's be wrapping up. And for, first of all, uh, the hour has blazed by. Every okay. time I do these, it seems like it, it, it happens even faster. But thank you so much for sharing what you know on Tech Leaders Hub, Hazel. I wanted to say, do you have any announcements for the audience? Anything that you want to share? Are you hiring or looking you know, to anything that you're looking for, anything that you want to put out there? Uh, now, now is the time to do it. Uh, anything you'd like to say? Yep. So from numbers point of view, we are busy on a growth trajectory at the moment. And we mm. have some posts out there. So we are hiring. Um, I would suggest people go onto the Numbler site um, and into our jobs and careers and you'll see what listed there, the roles that we want. It's not just tech roles, but there are some nice juicy tech roles there. So please do go in, have a look at the roles. And if you want to come work for a progressive fintech company like Numbler, which we are, please do apply, send your CV through 
and we'll take it under consideration. Excellent. Any particular positions you want to highlight or not specifically? Um, I think there's quite a number of them. Um, I know that we are looking for some full stack developers, so I'm very keen on that one. <laughs> um, and also um, I'm looking for data engineers and some DevSecOps people as well. So please do go in. Um, I don't think all of those roles are advertised yet, but go in and keep a check on And if, you, if you're interested, please do send your CV through. Okay, full stack, DevSecOps, and data engineers. Got it, got it. Uh, thanks for sharing. And I'm going to do my bit here, if you'll indulge me, just because some people might be watching or meeting SDX Next for the first time. Uh, hi, we're uh, calling ourselves Europe's Python powerhouse. We're probably the largest Python software agency in Europe. And we are looking for developers as well, of course. A lot <laughs> of companies are right now. We have a lot of open positions uh, pertaining to Python, JavaScript, data engineering, machine learning, uh, designers, what have you. I haven't even mentioned them all, but we are also looking for new clients to, uh, to work for. Uh, we can do anything rela related to a software project. We can help you discover what you're going to build, define it, design it, deliver it, debug it, and then <laughs> maintain it on production. I broke the streak there. I had, I think, a few more words starting with D there. <laughs> but basically, we're end to end. If you have Python on the back end, we're, uh, and I would say a natural choice, but I'm a little bit biased. So feel free to reach out to us either to get hired or to hire us via sdxnext.com. In the meantime, if you want to get more content from Tech Leaders Hub, and I really hope you do, that will make me extremely happy. The best way to do it is to follow STX Next on LinkedIn. We post there the most often. You can also search for Tech Leaders Hub on YouTube and on Facebook. We do have a Facebook group that is ramping up. Hazel's already there. So if you want to ask her some questions, she'll be there and she might answer them. So you can go ahead and do that. <laughs> I think those were all the announcements on, on my end. So I just wanted to thank you again, Hazel, for, for joining us today, sharing what you know. Thank you, all the watchers and listeners, for, for the questions. I don't know, any, any final remarks? No, just thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. And as you say, the hour has flown by. It's been real, a fun experience, and I've really enjoyed having this chat with you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. It was a very, very nice conversation. So thank you everyone for, for watching and for listening and for asking questions and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Leaders Hub. If you want more advice that will make you a better technical leader, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Tech Leaders Hub sessions are usually streamed live, giving you the opportunity to get answers to your burning questions directly from our guests. To take part in Tech Leaders Hub Live, follow STX Next on LinkedIn and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. That's S-T-X-N-E-X-T. Last but not least, we invite you to join our community and continue the discussion on Facebook. Just search for Tech Leaders Hub and you'll find our dedicated Facebook group. Once again, thanks for listening. Really glad you could join us. Hope we'll see you in the next one.